going to have a congregational meeting on Sunday, February, I think it's February the 6th, 5th, February the 5th, and so uh, be prepared for that, to go over, um, you know, church business and various things that are going on in the life of the body, and then uh, the next big event is going to be the Chafer Conference, which is March 13th through 15th. And be prepared because it will not be long before we're coming out with uh, needs for some people to volunteer to be drivers, volunteer in the kitchen, and with uh, several other duties. So uh, we should have a good crowd. This is going to be an exceptionally significant topic this year dealing with the inerrancy of Scripture and what is going on today. The battle for the Bible seems to never end. And uh, there was a recommendation of a speaker. Unfortunately, I didn't get his um, get the recommendation until about a week ago, so it was too late to put him on the speaker slot. I usually get the speakers firmed up sometime between May and July each year, and uh, there are, have been a couple of exceptions, but generally that's true. I already have. Usually by the time of the conference, I have the topic for the next year already picked out and key speakers already picked out. But this guy had writ- was a professor at a seminary in North Carolina, and he had written a paper dealing with the fact that we constantly have this battle, the battle for the Bible. Every 15, 20, 30 years, we go through it again. Why is it evangelicals can't resolve it? And he, ha- I thought he had a brilliant observation, which is the basis for his paper, is because... There are too many evangelicals who don't have a consistent, literal interpretation of Scripture. And if you don't have a consistent, literal interpretation of Scripture, then what happens is when you're trying to get the Scripture to fit your theology, you end up having to allegorize or some other way twist the Scripture to get a different meaning out of it, And in other words, you're rejecting its literal meaning. And if you're thinking the literal meaning is wrong, then you're 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 um, unwittingly affirming an errant text. And until we get people all understanding what a consistent literal hermeneutic is, we'll continue to have these kinds of uh, explosions every. uh, 25 or 30 years. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure they're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are... Always impressed as we come together to study your word with who you are, with your greatness, your immensity, the expansiveness of your grace and your kindness and your goodness toward us, and for the extent of your power 
than your love for us, that you have provided everything for us in salvation, and you provide everything for us in terms of our spiritual life. And that no matter what we may face in life, it's not unknown to you and has not been unknown to you for an eternal amount of time, and you have provided everything we need to rely upon you and trust in you. As we see in this psalm, great encouragement as we face our fears that we need have need not have any fears because you are with us. Father, we pray that as we wrap up this psalm tonight, that you will encourage us with the message and we are reminded of what is being taught here. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, and we're looking at the point of the instruction in the second half. We haven't quite gotten there yet. We're starting in verse 8. But the focal point here shifts to fearing the Lord. And so that's a major element in the second half. That's the instruction is to learn how to uh, fear the Lord. Now, what we see in this particular uh, passage, if uh, we go back and we, uh, we look at where we finished last time, the sort of the exhortation of the whole psalm can be summarized by verse 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Trusting in him. What we call the faith rest drill, that is mixing our faith with the promises of God, is a foundation for living the Christian life. And the result of the person who, who, who trusts in him is that he will be blessed. And as we see in the, in the context following that, the immediate context, uh, David says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. That fearing the Lord is how we, tr- is, is, is sort of the flip side of the coin of trusting in him because fearing the Lord is related to humility and submission to God's authority and being dependent upon him as we will see. Now, as we looked at the beginning of this psalm, we see that fear is a real problem for David. He was he was escaping from Saul, so Saul's after him. Saul has put a price on his head, wants him dead. And so David escapes to the one place where he thinks that Saul won't be looking for him, and that is uh, in Gath. And he goes to the king there, whose name is Achish. And uh, the question was asked last time, and I hadn't addressed this, is that in the superscript it doesn't talk about Achish, it talks about Abimelech. And Abimelech is a title. It literally means my father is king, Abimelech. And Abimelech, there are three Abimelechs that are mentioned in Scripture. There's the king of Gerar, who's a, that's a, also called the king of Philistia. This is in the time of Abraham. And he's mentioned in Genesis 20 and Genesis 21. And there's another Abimelech mentioned in Genesis 26. And that, the first Abimelech is mentioned... Um, in Genesis 20 and 21, this is when another episode when Abraham is telling Abimelech that, oh, this isn't my wife, this is Sarah, my sister, and goes and there's a problem there. And it's very likely that since the second episode with an, an Abimelech related to the Philistines in chapter 26 is with Isaac, it's possible, although we can't be sure not enough information is being given, that this is the next Ruler. I mean, it's sometime later. Abraham has died. Isaac is now very mature. So it's possible that this is not the same uh, Abimelech. Um, then it refers to the son of Gideon 
And that's explained in Judges chapter 9. It becomes a name that is applied to his son. And if you remember the story, after, after Gideon defeats the Midianites in Judges chapter 8, uh, he then leads the people into idolatry. He sets up a priestly ephod for people to come and worship. The ephod was a priestly garment, and he... Uh, puts this up and the people worship it. But before that happens, the people had come to him as a result of his defeating the Midianites and offered him the kingship. They said, would you be king over us? And he, in humility, says no. I think in genuine humility at that point he says no and he recognizes he shouldn't be king. But then he leads him into this idolatrous worship. We see the high point in his trust in the Lord when he says no and then it just goes down from there and he leads him into idolatry and then he has a son whom he names Abimelech meaning my father is king so you, you really if you don't understand the Hebrew there you don't catch the irony or the sarcasm that uh, the writer is bringing out there that here on the one hand he said he wouldn't be king and on the other hand he names his son my father is king so that's the story of, of Gideon and then there is a priest who is the father of Zadok and, and mentioned in First Chronicles 18.16 so since the term Abimelech is probably a title the general solution to this is that um, uh, Abimelech is a title for the king, the ruler of these Philistine cities. And so it, rather than using his personal name, Achish, uh, David uses the, um, the title uh, as the ruler of, uh, of, of Gath. So we looked at this. We looked at what happens here as, as uh, uh, David flees. Uh, from Jerusalem goes to Nob where he gets Goliath's a sword then he fled to the city of Gath and there he realizes that his cover has been blown and that he has been brought uh, who, his identity has been brought to the attention of everyone and they're seeking his life uh, he's delivered because he feigns madness which in that ancient culture and the superstition of their religion uh, in many of the pagan religions of the time somebody who was insane was touched by the gods and so you didn't want to do anything to hurt them otherwise you would incur the wrath of God so David is delivered by God and he praises God and as I pointed out what we see in Samuel is sort of the historical story and it looks like David just easily goes through this but then when we read in chapter in Psalm 34 we realize David whom we normally think of as someone who is not fearful someone who is uh, very courageous that that like Every human being, because of a sin nature, we have struggles with fears, anxiety, uh, worries. All of these things easily beset every, every one of us for any number of reasons and circumstances. And that's brought out in the, in the psalm. He says in verse, verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. And we never uh, understand that in... In, in uh, 1 Samuel 21, but it's clear here that he's very much afraid. And in verse 7 he says, The angel of Yahweh encamps all around those who, who fear him. And the shift is fear for the circumstances to recognize that the solution to facing our circumstances and not giving in to fear is to fear God. So we either fear the creation 
or some aspect of the creation or some circumstance in the creation or we fear God, one or the other. If we're fearing the creature or the creation, then we're not fearing God. Those are mutually exclusive. So the solution to fear, worry, anxiety, distress, uh, heartache, all of those things always comes back to fearing the Lord. So David structures this psalm according to two things, two ways of expressing praise. The first is declarative praise and the second is descriptive praise. Declarative praise is in the first ten verses. He vows to praise God and he invites or calls others to join him in praise to God in the first three verses. Last time we saw that he describes God's deliverance of him in the next uh, four verses, in verses four through seven, talking about how God delivers him from all of his fears, the sufficiency of God's omnipotence and the sufficiency of God's grace. And then he is going to invite the readers to trust the Lord fully for protection and provision in verses 8 through 10. That finishes that first section. And then the second section is descriptive praise. And part of the elements of descriptive praise that distinguishes it from declarative praise is that it it not only invites people to praise God, but instructs them in how to praise God and in what the foundation for praise to God is. If God is going to work in your life, then you need to fear Him. And that is exactly what we see starting in verse 11. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And the rest of the psalm is a an instruction on how to fear the Lord. So he calls upon others to learn and experience God's goodness in 11 and, verses 11 and 12. And then from verses 13 to 22, he will instruct them on God's goodness and how to fear the Lord. Just as a reminder, we looked at the four different kinds of parallelism. Synonymous parallelism is when the two or three lines of the text basically say the same thing in different words. Uh, synthetic parallelism is when the first line is developed or expanded or completed by the second line. Antithetic parallelism is when there's a contrast between what is said in the first line and what is said in the second line, as we see in Psalm 90, verse 6. In the morning it flourishes and grows up, but in the evening it is cut down and withers. So the second line is a contrast to the first line. And then emblematic, emblematic parallelism is when the idea expressed in one line of a verse is a picture or an emblem of something that is expressed in the second line. So as I pointed out last time, as we come to verse 7, David states a universal or nomic principle that the angel of Yahweh encamps all around those who fear him. If you fear the Lord, then the angel of God today in the church age, that would involve uh, the power of God. The angel of Yahweh is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ who is, appears on the scene as a theophany throughout the Old Testament. But once you have the birth of Jesus, there's no longer an appearance of the angel of Yahweh. You have an angel of the Lord who appears to Joseph and to Mary, but not the angel. And we've learned in both of those episodes that that the angel that appeared to Joseph and to Mary is Gabriel. Uh, 
So this is the angel of the Lord, and he is the one who encamps and surrounds those who fear him. And so this is, in the church age, a combination element of God who will provide protection and God the Holy Spirit. When we get, we've looked at these first, this first section, I just went through the outline. Now, okay, I went too fast, now I have to stop it. Now we're looking at this, what comes up in 8 through 10. David is exhorting or challenging others to trust the Lord for protection and provision. This is seen in verses 8, 8 through, 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10. So, verse 8, he invites people to experience the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then it's, we see that it's a synthetic parallelism because the second line isn't a synonym of the first line. It develops it. it and it's basically saying, if you taste and see that the Lord is good, if you fully experience Him in your life, then you will be blessed. Because the uh, result of tasting and seeing him is, or, or what that really means, is to trust in him, to fully trust in him, and the one who trusts in God will, will be blessed. These two words, um, taste and see, are basically used metaphorically. It's, and the tasting is not just getting a little nibble like when you go through Costco or HEB and on the, during the week and they have people out there with the little samples and you take a little taste. It is, it is fully enjoying something, taking something, eating it, uh, chewing it up, swallowing it up, where it becomes part of you and it's internalized. Uh, it's a picture of faith in the scriptures. This is the same thing that we see in the Lord's table. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, it is a symbol of faith, of, of completely accepting and internalizing who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. So this is what David is saying here. It's not saying just just have a little sampling of the Lord, but fully accepting and trusting him. So in that sense, in the second line, you have that uh, spe- specified as trusting in him, but then it talks about the result which is that we are blessed or we're happy, we have full joy. So if you think through the spiritual skills that I talk about, we have ten spiritual skills, and the ultimate spiritual skill, the last one as it's laid out logically, is to experience inner happiness. Uh, James says this at the beginning of his epistle, count it all joy. And I believe from my studies in James that that the rest of the epistle is telling you how to count it all joy, dealing with all of the trials and tribulations to be uh, quick to hear, that is to study God's word, slow to speak and slow to anger. And and so when we uh, look at at joy in Scripture, it's the result of, of tasting and seeing the Lord, trusting Him, the faith rest drill. And as we learn to rely on Him, then we have perfect happiness no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how bad uh, they might be. We see that the Lord is good. This is the Hebrew word tov, which basically means things are in accord with their design. But it comes in certain passages to be applied to something that is 
more than just according to plan, but it takes on a nuance of righteousness. But that only comes about in certain passages. We experience that the Lord is good to us. He is kind to us. He is generous to us. He is gracious to us. We think of all the ways in which we fail day in and day out where we are so absorbed with our own uh, agenda. We're absorbed with our own emotions. We're absorbed with all of our little petty little details in life. And then we think, well, you know, I'm supposed to be serving the Lord and all I can think about is is, uh, uh, how I'm going to make it to the end of the month and pay my bills or how I'm going to get rid of this cold or how I'm going to uh, deal with this person who seems to have it in for me and and we're not serving the lord we're just uh, consumed with with all these little petty details that our sin nature focuses on and yet god is merciful to us again and again and again and so we are to trust in him now this word for trust is an interesting word because it's not a word that at least i expected which is the hebrew word batach which means to completely trust and rely upon God. This is a synonym, but it has more of the idea of taking refuge. And so what we're to do is to take refuge in the Lord, to seek him to protect us from the fears. We hide in the cleft of the rock, to use another uh, uh, metaphor. We take refuge in him. We hide in the strong tower of the Lord. And so we have other verses in Scripture that emphasize the goodness of God, where our thankfulness in Psalm 118.1, Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for He is good. He is righteous, the New Testament tells us. He's holy. He's love. But in the Old Testament tells us He is good. It is His goodness, which sort of partially relates to His righteousness and partially relates to his grace and his kindness and his mercy. And that's how it's connected here. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then we have an explanation of that for his mercy, his covenant faithfulness, his loyal love endures forever. It is not dependent upon who we are, or but on who he is. For Israel, it didn't depend upon him. He is still faithful to that covenant with Abraham. Even though Israel has failed time and time and time again, they got into physical, literal idolatry in the Old Testament. Then by New Testament times, they, they became idolatrous of legalism and religion. And today, many uh, Jews in the world are just as idolatrous, but it's the idolatry of atheism, the idolatry of secularism, the idolatry of agnosticism and uh, their own human ability. But God is still faithful, and he has a plan for Israel that cannot be undone no matter how many anti-Semitic presidents or anti-Semitic chancellors or anti-Semitic prime ministers there are in the countries of the world. God's plan is going to work itself out. Psalm 107.9 tells us that God is the one who satisfies the longing soul. That's every single human being. Because of sin, we, have, we long for something. We long for happiness. We long for security. We long for stability. We long for safety. But as David experiences, there's no safety in the devil's world. 
There's no security in the devil's world. We all have our fears and worries and anxieties. They may be related to financial stability. They may be related to having a job. They may be related to our health. They may be related to our children, our children's health, our grandchildren's health. There's a lot of different things that we can be fearful of. There are a lot of things you can lie awake at night and focus on and just obsess about in terms of fear and worry. Except what the scripture says is the believer should focus on the Lord because he's the one who satisfies the longing soul so that we have no needs, we have no fears, we have no worries or anxieties. And he fills the hungry soul with goodness, with his kindness and with his grace. And and that is a figure of speech where his goodness is put for what his goodness supplies for us in taking care of us. Then we come to verse 9. Verse 9 is um, talks about the fear of the Lord. We're to taste and see that the Lord is good in verse 8. Uh, the happy, fulfilled human being is the one who trusts in him. And then uh, David just cries out, Oh, fear the Lord, you his, you his saints. He calls upon them. The saints here is from the... Um, I have the wrong thing underlined here. It should this, It's saints up here, not those who fear him. And it refers to just the holy ones, the sanctified ones, the set-apart ones. A saint is not a church-age believer by definition. A saint is any believer at any time, depending on the dispensation. So you had Old Testament saints. You had saints that were antediluvian before Noah's flood. You have... Gentile saints in the Old Testament. You have uh, Israelite saints in the Old Testament. You have church age saints in this dispensation. You have tribulation saints in the next dispensation. And there will be millennial saints in the millennial dispensation. So a saint is not a term that is restricted. And remember that because on Sunday mornings as we're studying in Matthew 24 and 25, it will talk about the saints and often people say, well, see, the rapture must not have occurred yet. No, these are tribulation saints. Saint is not a term that is specific to any, any dispensation. So we're to fear the Lord because there is no want. There's no need. There, there, this reminds me of Psalm, uh, Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd. I what? I shall not want. I shall not need. Um, you know, that tells us something about most modern psychological models are all based on a need idea, that the problem is man has these needs and then he can be happy once the needs are met. And there's an element of truth there. But the Bible says that as long as you're a sinner operating with a vacuum in your soul, you always have spiritual needs and God is the only one who can fill that vacuum. Uh, it's not going to be through the methodologies of Freud and Jung and Maslow and, you know, the infinite number, it seems, of modern, uh, uh, modern psychiatrists. There's no want to those who fear him. The solution to the problems of life, to the fears, worries, anxieties, and uncertainties is a close relationship with God. You build that close relationship with him today and he frees you from those fears, worries, and anxieties. But sadly for a lot of people, they've spent 50 years of their life camping out on their fears and worries 
and missing out on what God has for them because they just don't want to trust Him. Psalm 22.3, we read, You who fear Yahweh, praise Him. So one of the things we learn in relation to what does it mean to fear the Lord is that we're to praise Him. You who fear Yahweh, praise Him, all you descendants of Jacob. So here he's talking about Israelite believers. All the you descendants of, of Jacob, glorify Him and fear Him, all you offspring of Israel. So Psalm 22 is focusing on much the same, same theme. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? I well, sat down today and, and looked at, there are a lot of verses related to fearing the Lord. And I worked out a number of different, uh, nine different principles or summations on what it means to, uh, to fear, uh, to fear the Lord. And so we see this. First of all, the fear of the Lord is critical and foundational to all spiritual growth as it's expressed in the Old Testament. You cannot grow spiritually without the fear of the Lord. You will not experience happiness or joy unless you uh, fear the Lord. You won't experience any form of spiritual growth unless you um, fear the Lord. It's related to the development of wisdom, which is skillful spiritual living, understanding, which is related to discernment, being able to make good decisions by applying doctrine, and knowledge, just understanding not just the facts, but how they relate to life. And we see this in, in these three verses, which I have on this, this particular slide. Psalm 111.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That means you can't start to build wisdom or skillful living without the fear of the Lord. It's at the beginning. Now, the, we'll see what that means in the next slide. I don't want to get ahead of myself. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. So it relates. Psalm 111.10, we have a synthetic parallelism there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is the first line. The second line is a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. So doing his commandments is what we'll see someone who has the fear of the Lord does. They, they obey him. And the result of that is, is understanding. Job 28.28, 28, to, to, to man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. Same thing. Fear of the Lord. So what is this fear of the Lord? And to depart from evil is understanding. So we also see there's an element to fearing the Lord that is giving up evil. It's, it's removing sin from the life. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Again and again, there's a drumbeat. Without it, there's no wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the second point that we see is that a profound respect and awe for God's person. This is what the fear of the Lord is. It's a profound respect and awe for God's person, especially as a righteous judge whose will and ways must be followed or face serious consequences. I remember when I was a kid. Now, I have certain experiences as a child that most of you didn't have because my mother was in a wheelchair. And I always wanted, when I was in college, when I was in ROTC or sometime in there, I went over to Fort Hood, and I picked up a decal over there for the 2nd Armored Division. 
Anybody here remember what the motto for the Second Armored Division was? Hell on wheels. I put that on the back of my mother's wheelchair. <laughs> she loved that. But I remember when I was about seven or eight years old, I got in trouble. I have no idea what I did. I mouthed off or something, but I got in trouble. And um, and she was in a wheelchair. So she was, you know, I used to say my mother was, was about... And my mother was about this high and about that wide and had wheels. Now, you remember what 1950s construction homes were like in terms of bathrooms. They weren't these, little, they, they weren't these big, open, spacious bathrooms like we have today. They were narrow. They were just uh, about three inches wider on each side than the axle of that wheelchair, than the, the what's, what's that called, the wheel width on that, that wheelchair. And I was in the bathroom, and my mother came in the door, which meant there's no place to go. And she had a belt in her hand, because it was time for a little discipline. But I had gotten big enough, tall enough, and agile enough to where, as she came toward me, I jumped up on the bathroom counter and over her and out the door. And all I heard was, your father will take care of this. Now, the emotion that I felt at that point, that is like the fear of the Lord. I think that communicates. There, there is something extremely serious and negative that is going to transpire. And you need to recognize that what you have done is wrong and there will be consequences. That's what I'm talking about in terms of respect and awe. This isn't just, yes, Lord, yes, sir. This is that, that the Lord is really in control. And that if you don't submit to his authority, then there will be consequences. So Proverbs 19.23 tells us on the positive side, uh, the fear of the Lord leads to life. We'll see that again and again. The fear of the Lord is always connected to real life capacity for life. Capacity for joy, capacity for happiness. Without the fear of the Lord, there's no capacity. He who has it will abide in satisfaction. I think this is a problem with a lot of people today. They're just not satisfied in life. They're always on a frantic search for happiness, looking for something that's going to give them meaning or stability or joy or somehow deaden the pain of whatever uh, disasters they've had in their life. And then it concludes, he will not be visited with evil. The, pers- the, the one who has the fear of the Lord is going to have life, and there won't be these negative consequences, because many of the negative consequences in our lives are the result of our own bad decisions. We reap what we sow. Proverbs 10.27 says that the fear of the Lord prolongs days. It's not just a quality of life, it's length of life. But the years of the wicked will be shortened. Okay, that's generally true. That's, not, that's what a proverb is. It's not a promise. It's a proverb. And proverbs are maxims. They represent things that are generally true, but not, not hard, fast promises. So we have to have the fear of the Lord because it makes a difference in the quality of life and the length of life. Point number three, this respect for the power and authority of God is a manifestation of humility and submission to divine authority. That's why it's the beginning of wisdom. You can't learn anything if you're not humble. 
if you're arrogant, you can't learn a thing. If you are full of yourself, you're never going to listen to wisdom. You think you already know the answer. If you are not submitted to the authority over you, you are bound for a failure and a major collapse in life. And so the fear of the Lord is the start for everything. If you don't submit to God's authority, if you can't recognize he's in charge, then the end result is self-destruction. So Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. We have to have the fear of the Lord to learn and to grow, and that's humility. Before honor is humility. But Proverbs 22.4, By humility and the fear of the Lord, they're tied together, are riches and honor and life. Notice, in both they reflect honor, that is a quality of character. Fourth point, the contrast is the arrogant rejection and disrespect for God's teaching and instruction. So on the one hand, the positive thing is that we are to submit to God's authority. We recognize that he is the one who is in charge, and so we submit to that and follow his instruction and leadership. In contrast, if you don't have the fear of the Lord, there's an arrogant rejection of God and disrespect for his teaching and instruction. And you see that today everywhere. People don't care what God said. Christians don't care what God says. Christians can't sit still for 45 minutes to listen to the teaching of God's word. And, and yet, if you go to other cultures where they don't have God's word and they have humility, they will sit for hours. In some places, they will stand for hours to listen to God's word because it is God's word. And we think, oh, you know, Robbie's going over another five minutes, and I, I'm hungry. I'm tired of listening. I can't make it. You know, and I talk to people like, like Jim Myers, who goes to Zambia, and, uh, and he teaches for six hours, and they may take two or three restroom breaks. I'm thinking, I don't know if I can teach that long. Y'all are sitting out there going, no, no problem, right? But you go to India, and I've heard the same story from pastors who've gone over to India, and they said, oh, you know, I got there at 4 o'clock in the morning, and there were 500 people waiting for me to teach them the Word, and I taught for three hours, and then I left, and I went to the next village. You know, that's real positive volition. And people who walk, when I, uh, we went to Kazakhstan with Jim Myers in 2000, there were pastors who came from the various central republics, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, and they had taken buses and been on buses and trains for two or three days to get to Amati in order to study the Word of God for two weeks. Just that, that, that is what it means to want to know the Word of God. But those who don't, the church can be around the corner, can be the best Bible teacher in the world, but they just want to sleep late and be a bedside Baptist. So, the contrast brings consequences. Arrogance and disrespect for God's Word brings consequences. Proverbs one twenty seven: when your terror comes on you like a storm, and your destruction comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me. See, that's what I've seen that so many times. You have too, where you see people that only time they show up in church and start to listen is when 
problems happen, when they go through a divorce, when somebody dies, when they lose their job, when uh, some other catastrophe takes place, then they say, then I'll go, I'll go to church and I'll, I'll get right with God until everything finally becomes stable again. But they then they go right back to the same old ways. So this is what Proverbs is talking about. The me here is wisdom. Uh, then they will call on me, that is wisdom, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. When the crisis happens, if you haven't taken in the word of God to sustain yourself, it's too late. When everything falls apart, wisdom says, you, you didn't prepare yourself, and now it's too late, so I'm, I'm out of here. Why is it that way? Verse 29, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a choice. We make it a hundred times every day. Am I going to fear the Lord or just do it my own way? Verse 5, the fear of the Lord is to be taught and therefore it is to be learned. That's our passage, Psalm 34:11. Come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So if somebody's teaching it, then somebody should be learning it. Sixth, the fear of the Lord emphasizes the immediate necessity of knowing God's word in contrast to an attitude ranging from ignoring God's word to disdaining God's word. Okay, some people, they're just a little too busy. It's important to know the Bible. They give it lip service. They may even believe that, but they can't quite organize their time every day to ever take in the word. They're too busy. They're too tired. They have too many details going on, but, but I just, I'll get to it next week, and it never happens, sort of like their diet. Proverbs 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you're not listening to the Word of God for three or four hours a week, then you're bordering on despising instruction because you don't think it's important enough. People who show up at church once a week, now, there are a lot of people who only show up here once a week, but they're listening during the week. They're reading their Bible. They are listening to some of the uh, better uh, teachers on Christian radio. They're taking in the Word on daily, and that's what we're supposed to be doing. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I know people who have extremely uh, challenging jobs that keep them focused and busy 12 hours a day, but they still manage to read a chapter a day. They still manage at night to listen to something. I know seminary students, you think, seminary students ought to have great spiritual lives. No, it's academics just like anything else. And it's very easy not to let that become anything more than academics. And so when you go to seminary, you need to make sure that some of the time you spend every day is to focus on the Lord for your own spiritual growth. And I told people, I just can't listen to a tape a day or a lesson a day. Listen to 10 minutes every day. You're listening to 10 minutes. It's for your own personal spiritual growth. Read a chapter for your own spiritual growth every day. And, and that's what's, what's needed. Sometimes that's all the time that we have. Seventh, the fear of the Lord leads to long life. Again and again we see this in Scripture. Quality of, not just quality, it leads to quality and capacity, but also length of days. 
leads to long life, development of capacity for life, and great joy no matter what the details of life are. Proverbs 10.27, The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Proverbs 19.23, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction, capacity. He will not be visited with evil, won't have those negative consequences from bad decisions. Proverbs 14.26, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his, what is that, 14.26, slipped off the end of the... uh, Slipped off the edge of the page there. Um, in the fear of the Lord, there's strong confidence, and his children will have a place of refuge. So it provides for the next generation. Eighth point God's wisdoms make us an ethical demand on our life. To be wise means to live consistently with God's character. We must choose to obey him and follow the path of righteousness and justice and depart from evil. If we choose wisdom and we live in sin, then we have not chosen wisdom. Proverbs 19.9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So it relates the fear of the Lord to his judgments, to that which is revealed in Scripture. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. So God addresses mental attitude sins of pride and arrogance. Also the choice of an evil path that has to do with every area of life, uh, sins of the tongue, Mental attitude sins and overt sins. And the perverse mouth, that is slander, gossip, uh, all kinds of sins of the tongue. Proverbs 16.6, in mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. God, in mercy and truth, provides a solution to sin. But by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. You can put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's what we're exhorted to do in Romans chapter 8. And then the ninth point, evil is more than a synonym for sin. Because we think of evil as just the bad. But evil, religion, moral religion, is evil. Moral religion is, is, doesn't mean you're immoral, doesn't mean you're, you're doing those bad things, but you're trying to live a good, righteous life apart from God doing good deeds in our own power rather than in the power of God. So that gives us a summary of the fear of the Lord, which is what is being focused on here. Fear the Lord, you His saints. There's no want, there's no lack to those who fear Him. And then he contrasts that with the young lions. Verse 10, the young lions. This is representing his enemies, those who are uh, seeking his life, who seek to devour him and destroy him. And often those who are sinners are focused on, uh, are represented as beasts like the kingdoms of man in Daniel chapter 7. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. They're not really happy. They're, they're miserable, and they, they, they have great needs, and that's what, one of the reasons that they are seeking to fill them with uh, drugs or with uh, sexual enjoyment 
or with uh, status symbols or uh, whatever it may be. But those who seek the Lord, and that's that word we studied earlier, uh, the word uh, darash, which is back in verse 4, I sought the Lord and he heard me. That's a word for prayer, earnestly, diligently seeking those who seek the Lord, those who diligently and earnestly seek him in prayer. They shall not lack any good thing. Notice how that develops from there is no want to those who fear him. Those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good any good thing. So this is this is Psalm thirty four ten. Notice the it's an antithetical parallelism and a contrast between uh, the first line and the second line. Those in the first line are the young lions, the unbelievers, those who are not trusting God, and the second line is in contrast. It's uh, those who seek the Lord. All right. So here's what we've done. We've looked at the declar- declaration of praise in the first ten verses. David vows to praise God and call for others to join him in praise in 34, uh, 1 through 3. And then he describes God's deliverance in 34, 4 through 7. And then he challenges others to taste and see, that is to trust the Lord for protection and provision in verses 8 through 10. And then in the second half, we have the descriptive praise, which instructs others on how to praise God and what praise for God is. And that's in verses 11 to 22. And it really focuses on um, fearing the Lord. Come, verse 11 says, come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. In verses 11 and 12, he calls on others to experience God's goodness and what that means. Uh, to love the Lord and to fear Him. And then in the second part, he goes on into instruction. So he says, Come you children, talking to others as children. Actually, he's talking to them as sons, because it is the Hebrew word ben. Uh, you know the uh, movie, the film, based on the book, Ben-Hur, means son of Hur, meaning that was his, that was his family. His full name was Judah Ben-Hur. Come you children, come you sons, it's a plural of been there. Come you sons, but it's talking to men and women together, treating them as sons. Listen to me, David says, I will teach you, I will give you the instruction on how to fear the Lord. Who is the man who desires life? So he asks a rhetorical question here. Do you want life? You want to fear the Lord? Do you want life? Is that what you want? You want to have security. You want to have stability. You want to have joy. You want to have the ability to walk through the fires of life, the fires of testing, where you're calm, you're relaxed, and you can make wise decisions. Uh, then uh, you need to. This it starts with the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days? See, we've seen that the fear of the Lord leads to long life. And that you may see good, that is, experience the goodness of God, because we have learned, taste and see that the Lord is good. So this is the foundation for that, um, for that challenge. Now, then we come to the second part, which covers the rest of the psalm from verses 13 to 22. We have five areas of instruction. David is going to instruct in each of these areas of instruction are uh, are couplets that are two verses, two verses. 
So in each one, we see guidance as to how to fear the Lord. The first two verses, verses 13 and 14, basically can be summed up as do not follow evil in word or deed. In other words, don't get caught up in sins of the tongue where you are saying caustic things about people, saying negative things about people, gossiping about people, uh, telling things about people that are not true. And that includes getting on the Internet and sending things around that aren't true without vetting them first. Uh, This is a terrible thing. And Christians and conservatives are horrible about this. Liberals are too, but I don't get emails from liberals like that. You don't either, probably, unless you have nasty relatives. Okay, so we have to uh, not follow an evil word or deed, but pursue goodness and shalom, peace, health. Okay? So what we have here is, at the very beginning, uh, keep which is the idea of guard your tongue from evil. Put a guard on your tongue. Watch what you say. Be conscious, conscious of what you are saying. And your lips from speaking deceit. So we have a um, almost a chiasm here. Keep your tongue and um, your lips from speaking deceit. No, it would be keep your tongue and your lips. Uh, from speaking deceit. So one from evil, one from uh, speaking deceit. So it's a synonymous parallelism there. Uh, pursue. Uh, and then in, um, and the idea here is, is to pursue, uh, this with, and, and then verse, excuse me, verse 14, depart from evil, uh, which is the Hebrew word sur, which means to turn aside or depart. So both of these verbs indicate uh, intentionality and thoughtful planning. This is something that you are working out conscientiously, that you are going to put a guard on your mouth and you are going to eschew evil and you're going to instead do good. Uh, and for the church age believer, that means walking by the Spirit. You are going to seek peace, that is shalom, And in a broader sense, that's reconciliation with God, and we could apply that to evangelism. And you're going to pursue it, and that has the idea of of intentionality and uh, thoughtful planning. Proverbs 4.24, all of this relates very much to to what's in Proverbs. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, and put perverse lips far from you. He who guards his mouth preserves his life. Again, we see that connection between wisdom and life. But he who opens wide, notice the antithetical parallelism here. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. So the person who opens his lips, who gossips, who maligns, who slanders, is going to destroy people and eventually destroy, uh, destroy himself. Now what's interesting as we look at verse 13, what does it say? Keep or guard your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Look at verse at First Peter chapter 3, verse 10. He would love life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. 
Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 10 through 12, is basically quoting from uh, Psalm 34, verses 13 down through 16. So we'll get to that in about two or three weeks in our study of First Peter on Sunday night. Verse 15, we get the next guidance. Live righteously here. He's talking about living righteously because the Lord honors this and He doesn't honor evil. In verse 15, we have synonymous parallelism. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Eyes of the Lord are parallel to his ears. They both reflect God's knowledge, what he knows. These terms, eyes of the Lord and his ears, are anthropomorphisms. Now, here's our definition of an anthropomorphism. It's attributing to God some human physical characteristic, an eye, an ear, a nose, finger, arm, things like that. Attributing to God human physical characteristics which he does not actually possess in order to communicate to human beings the plans and the policies of God. So the idea here is that through eyes, God sees what is going on, watches us, his ears, he's paying attention to us. And so the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. God pays attention to you as a believer. He cares about the details of his life. He is going to put your tears in his bottle. He cares about everything that bothers you. And then, in contrast, verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And it's a synthetic parallelism, so the second line expands on that and says, to cut off remembrance of them for the earth. There will be a time when the wicked will be remembered no more. When we get into eternity, we'll never remember it. It's gone. So the second group of verses is a uh, challenge that fear of the Lord means to live righteously because the Lord honors this and he does not honor evil. Third, the third part of being uh, fearing the Lord is to pray to the Lord in times of trouble because he's compassionate. We do not spend enough time in prayer. Uh, we say it again and again to where it's just one of those complaints that people don't listen to anymore, but we should have a lot more people showing up at prayer meetings. If we really believe in the power of prayer, we should have a lot of people. But this has been a complaint throughout all the church history, I believe. I remember reading about Spurgeon complaining about not enough people showing up for prayer meeting in the middle of the week. So um, it's important. We need to pray. We need. To, it expresses our dependence upon the Lord. That is part of the fear of the Lord. Verse 17 says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears. Notice this goes all the way back to the second verse, or the, excuse me, the fourth verse. I sought the Lord, and he heard me. The righteous cry out. And the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. This is what David experienced in verse 4. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 18, Yahweh is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Now, both of these terms, to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit, are are metaphors for talking about the person who is submissive to God. 
They're figures of speech for the person who is not trying to have his own way, but is seeking seeking God's way. And the result is this verb, natsal, God delivers from troubles. He delivers, he rescues from these tight places, the places that bring stress into our lives. And that word natsal on the left for deliver is echoed in the next a uh, couple of verses in verses 19, uh, 19 and 20, where uh, the fear of the Lord uh, represent is represented by the believer who goes through many fiery trials, but is delivered by the Lord it says many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. See, why does he deliver them? Because they cry out in the midst of their troubles. Verse 17. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards. God guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That idea, not this verse, it's not quoted, but that idea is applied to Jesus on the cross that not one bone was broken. But the verse isn't, isn't spoken of as a fulfillment of prophecy. This isn't messianic. So, the Lord takes away or delivers us so that we are rescued from trouble. See, John 19.33 has this idea that when, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. That's the only, it's kind of an illusion, but it's not uh, a statement of uh, a prophecy. It's just simply sort of an applied idea. Then we come to verse 21. And this is the fifth area of instruction that for those who fear the Lord, they are to take refuge in the Lord because those who do, who do will not be condemned. And it closes out, evil shall slay the wicked and those who hate the self-righteous shall be condemned. It's self-destruction to be evil or to hate the righteous. But in contrast, verse 22, the Lord redeems the soul of his servant. He purchases us. We are, this is talking about spiritual salvation. We are purchased with a price. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. I think that's a great verse for eternal security. God will redeem us, and none will be condemned. What does Paul say in Romans 8.1? He picks up on this idea. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how the Bible fits together. So what we've seen in Psalm 34 is Paul's, excuse me, David's expression of how he faced his fear in prayer, dependence upon the Lord, his idea of coming up with a, a technique of, of feigning madness, is, is not something that he just thought, oh, well, that sounds like a good idea. It's a result of prayer. Uh, through prayer and dependence upon God, God led him in that direction. And so that was how he was able to escape. So next time we'll come back and we'll get into our next chapter in 1 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 22. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study through this psalm, to come to understand its importance for our life, that just as David faced fears and worries and anxieties, uh, so we too face fears, worries, and anxieties, but our solution is the same as his, and that is to seek you in prayer, the vehicle for expressing our trust and our reliance upon you, knowing that you will be our refuge 
You will be the one to rescue us and to deliver us. And even if it means physical death or even a time of suffering, for we're not promised that that won't happen, that you will provide for us in grace and you will sustain us no matter what happens physically. But spiritually, we will be rescued and we will always spend eternity with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.